0: Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with
1: me is Derek Special. Hey, hello. What's happening, Derek? Wow, we're recording in studio. Right? Isn't that nice? <sighs> <laughs> you know, it, it's more controlled
0: environment and, and it is, whatnot. It is, it is. As fun yeah. as it is to get out to uh, places and I know, right? record live and in person.
1: So as everybody heard from last week, we uh, are the first of three episodes for the uh Quiet Adventure. Quiet mean. Adventure Symposium. So, first episode played last week. This week we have another special one for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're just kind of just trying to absorb everything we experienced. And uh, so we're uh, just doing a little bit uh, intro outro. But uh, we we think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. It's uh, it's really special.
0: Yeah. So, when we were at the Quiet Adventure Symposium,
1: like I said, we, are, we we go through a list
0: and we look at everybody and say, oh, I'd like to talk to them, I'd like to talk to them, mm-hmm. like to talk to them. And uh, one of the ones that, there's two of them that seem to... Slip out of our grasp. They are so popular and so busy. Yeah. Cliff Jacobson being yes. one of them. And he's, again, now I had the little paddle uh, debate with him. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which <laughs> I'm saying I enjoy joy the wooden paddle and he's saying no you should be getting carbon fiber maybe when i'm 862 like you are (laughs) i will have one but right now i prefer and uh he's trying to yeah he's he's trying to say no you gotta gotta have it
1: i was surprised that he was so hardcore carbon fiber paddle because he's he's such a traditionalist he's he's old school he's with everything to do with paddling and i'd be you know i'd be Surprise if he doesn't go out in in wo- his woolies and uh, you know cedar canvas, right? Can you right? But uh, yeah, he's hardcore uh, carbon, carbon fiber. fiber. Yeah, pow 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 yeah.
0: pow pow pow. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, check out Kevin Callan, happy camper. He posted a little video about uh, Cliff and I having a little chit chat about whether yeah. we should be using wooden paddles or. Uh, Carbon fiber. Yeah. Anyway, Cliff Cliff evaded us again this year. Yes, he did. Through no fault of his own or yeah. ours. But every time you go over there, he's like He's busy. Got a ton of people signing yeah. books, or he's off giving another presentation. Mm-hmm. So But this year we
1: managed to nab Hap Wilson. I know. Like we've been trying to interview him for years.
0: Yeah, a few years now. And well, I mean the COVID years didn't help anything. Yeah, that, did yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, we managed to sit down with him and uh, in person. Yeah. Uh, he writes books, I actually got two of his books here, Dance of the Dead Men, Dead Men which uh, is pretty good. Um, uh, it's That's
1: his fiction, right?
0: Yeah, it's one of his fiction. It's based on the John Hornby um, failed expedition. Oh, okay. Um, you know, they found his journals and, and whatnot in diary, well, not his, but his nephew's journals and whatnot about what had happened and he he took all that and sort of added dialogue to it to make a semi-fictitious story and it's actually quite good. And what's the other one here I got? Rivers of the Upper Ottawa Valley Myth, Magic and Adventure compiled and illustrated by Hap Wilson. Basically it talks about the area, gives maps and where rapids are and what you should look out for and um, it, it's like a little he's, guidebook. He's got
1: that for so many rivers. He's got yeah. guidebooks for a lot of rivers. This one,
0: I, I mean, this one must have been done in like the 80s or something. I don't know. It's I've had it for a long, long time. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But yeah, author. Um,
1: painter. Painter, he drawings. Draws, uh, paint.
0: Massive canoe. Yep. You know, canoe guy. He environmentalist big time into the tomogamy area yes uh him and his uh, partner andrea run the cabin falls eco lodge and if you ever get a chance to go there you will not be disappointed
1: i'm going to try and get up there this summer i like, uh, you,
0: no, you guys went by there but uh, you and mikey and willow went by
1: yes we did we uh, we stopped gone. in and signed their guest book they weren't in at the time but we signed yeah. the guest log and and waved at their cameras and stuff so waved <laughs> hello
0: <laughs> we were here you were gone yeah. left our names to turn you on <laughs> uh so yeah we got a chance to sit down with uh hap and have a little chit chat with him about a few things and just said here tell us about hap wilson yes and he did and uh he's had a long long life that uh well, he's not like you know Ancient or anything yet. No, as old as Cliff. He's done a lot of things. Well, Cliff yes. is 800 and something years old, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's like Yoda. Uh, but no, I mean, Hap is, has done an awful lot of things in, in uh, his lifetime. and He has. Um,
1: as you will learn yeah. when you hear him talk during an yeah. interview.
0: So here it is, uh, without further ado, our interview at the Quiet Adventure Symposium with Hap Wilson. We are sitting with Hap Wilson. Uh, they got this little bio of you. Like it's like it's like a twelve-page bio. Where did you pull this from? <laughs> About the, the, the speaker's the, list. Yeah, but oh, I'm, I'm old. Wow. <laughs> Apparently, it is. You're ancient. Uh, mapped out a thousand miles of Ontario section of the Trans Canada Trail. Called the Path of the Paddle in Northwest Ontario. You've, you got new guidebooks, illustrates numerous ways of exciting canoe routes. Author, fourteen guidebooks, novels, short stories, photographer, artist, wilderness guide. Uh, co-founded the environmental group Earth Roots in Toronto. International fellow of the Explorers Club, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Like
2: uh, and taught Pierce so, Brosnan how to paddle a canoe and throw an axe.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> traveled more than 50,000 miles by canoe. I don't even think Kevin Callan's done that. No. Yeah, Kevin's yeah, he, slacking now.
2: He hasn't gotten out of cottage country.
0: Right? <laughs> and uh, owner-operator of the canoe in Eco Lodge in Tamagami's Wilderness Park. Would it be faster just to read off what you haven't done?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's like yeah, but my doctor says, well, what doesn't hurt? That's easy. <laughs> it's easier. It's, it's easier. It's <laughs> easier. Yeah. Welcome uh, to the show here, uh, Hap. Uh, my pleasure, guys. Uh, nice. Thanks for the invite. Nice to
0: have you here. We've been trying to get you on, but every time we... You're busy. You're yeah. a busy man.
2: Well, busy, I'm fearful of these things. You know, I don't oh, do yeah. a lot in social media. I do a little bit now because my publishers say, "Get, you know, you got to get your name out there because, you know, we, we don't market for you guys anymore. You're on your own, basically. Oh, so. right, <laughs> right. So,
0: so, now, we've been following you forever. I mean, we've been following you longer than we actually know you. You know the stuff you do, the paddling trips, um, the guidebooks. I think I got guidebooks from like 20 years ago.
2: No, it's 40 oh. years old. That's first 78. <laughs> yeah, I, so was that, on, I was only eight years old when I first put that out. So. <laughs> right, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, you do that.
0: <laughs> so, tell us about uh, a bit about yourself, how, Who you are, uh, what you do, why you got into all of this, a little bit of your history.
2: Yeah, you know. Um, I had dysfunctional parents, except my dad was making uh, survival movies for the Department of Lands and Forest back in the 1950s, early 60s. And uh, we had a cottage north of Peterborough. And one of the first cottagers on the lake, and, as a matter of fact, on Clear Lake, next to Stony Lake. <clears throat> now, my father was uh, making movies. He had uh, um, elder uh, bush craftsmen on the sets. And uh, that was the first time I had actually, you know... My introduction to the indigenous culture. Right. And when, when, uh, I, I'll just call him, uh, old Sam, I don't remember his name, but I all remember he smelled like leather and wood smoke. A giant of a man, few words, and it was all in gestures, and he taught uh, my brother and I how to, how to canoe. I was six years old, six, seven years old. He would take us into the bush, teach us camp crafts, how to boil water in a birch bark bowl, how to find your way in the bush without a trail. Um, all these things were magic to me. And, right. and since then, you know, I wanted to be like that. You know, I was a white guy wanting to be, if I can say, an Indian. And, uh, and that was my introduction to another whole other world. And, and I just, from then on, you know, when I was uh, going to public school, I spent as much time as I could outside in high school. You know, I was a dysfunctional student. Although, when you write a book, they bring you back into the class of distinction, right? I, even no matter how bad a student you are in high school, they bring you back and put you in the, I'm behind the glass case, right? Right. And and I felt bad because I had to get up and give a speech, you know, and I said, all my old teachers were there, like 90 years old, you know, all the ones I gave gave grief to when I was in high school. And they were glaring at me, and I said, "Well, look at me, I'm up here now, look at that. You know, I fell asleep in your class, and I really apologize. But. Or, or I turned my desk around so I could see outside, not the not the chalkboard. And I was building cabins. So grade thirteen, I spent fifty days away from school building my first cabin. Wow! Oh yeah. Anyway, that's the introduction to, to my life. Then I became a ranger, and I worked for the government. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. All, all of a
0: sudden, he took a left turn I in had, his life.
2: I had an honorable <laughs> job then. It was uh, you know, like we packed out three thousand bags of garbage, mostly from like motorboat access, right? Uh, car access, uh, campsites, and remote access because c- canoeists are sneakier when they hide their garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The canoe camp started the camp, what's known as the can dump in, oh yes. play, like all the parts out. Yeah, yeah. They'd be out there, and even in their guidebooks and their instructions, as a guide. Burn and flatten your tins, and then throw them in the in the can dump behind the campsite. Well, we went around and removed. Oh wow! But it's interesting because you go through. It's like the archives of the canoeing industry. Yeah, right. You'd go through. We'd be scraping out these tin cans and tin cans. Of course, modern day campers see that. and They just toss all the plastics and all that other stuff, all that detritus from the modern day on top of the the, the historic stuff. We'd be pulling out, you know, five pound bully, bully beef, bully beef tins of corned beef. From the bottom, perfectly preserved, like from the 1920s from when, right. they, when the camps uh, <clears throat> were traveling up in like place like Tamagami. So, yeah, Garbage Ranger, used to, that was my nickname from the other staff. That garbage I Ranger. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wear that with pride.
0: Now, you know what, we, we go on some canoe trips and stuff, like in Algonquin and whatnot, and sometimes you're, you know, there's historical things on the map, so you try to find it. Yeah. And you find these little garbage dumps, and you're looking at bottles that are... Yeah, you know, like, decades. 50, yeah,
2: fifty years old. Yeah, well, my first year um, after mapping out topography, it's ten thousand square kilometers, and uh, you know the thirty-two hundred kilometers of, of, of Nestogan, those ancient five thousand year old trails we're right. trying, trying to protect. My then the government said, well, we can't just leave it that way. We've got to get you got you got to get you in to clear the portages. Well, some of these portages haven't been cleared for decades and decades. Right. And, uh, so I had to hire a a crew. So I had, I hired two guys that camped and guided for Camp Keewaden on Lake Tamagami. And they knew where all the can dumps were. So that Uh, was a, that was a plus. They could take me right to that can dump because, because, you know, they, that's where they put their garbage. Right. So, yeah, we spent, I think, probably three, four years cleaning up all of these old can dumps. And, uh, uh, wasn't easy. The budgets, our budget for maintenance on Crown land, uh, kept diminishing as more people wanted to come to the park systems and and Crown land and, and canoe. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That you know. Of course, I mean, you think about the government. You know, you know, you were talking about logic here. <laughs> <You> know, sometimes, <laughs> wow. sometimes it's, uh, you know, making some of the decisions that they would make sort of sort of went against all of the uh, certainly the, the the ethical considerations like. Uh, for, for example, they wouldn't fly out the garbage anymore that we collected. They said we got to bury it. Of course, we're in the Rock oh. Knob uplands. It's all yeah. bed, bedrock, so you try to bury fifty bags of garbage <laughs> on a bedrock plateau. Yeah, yeah. You, you Not come here. You come here with a pickaxe and a shovel, and let's see you do that. Yeah. So we ended up having to find look for places where we could actually bury the garbage. Uh, thankfully, they you know they they stopped doing that finally, and we uh, we had cleaned up the district. There was no more garbage. Right. So, <laughs> so, so we feel a bit proud about that. I we, that was an honorable part of what we did for the ministry. And uh, the only thing I, I... I just remember the first two years in doing portage work, they wouldn't give us a chainsaw because our two-way radios wouldn't work in the most remote area. So we, oh. had, we had, you know, and Tomogamy's got these giant pines, so all these these this crisscrossing and like like uh, pickup sticks on the portages, all these giant pines. We had to axe all those things out of there. Oh, Ooh. So they were afraid we were going to cut off our, our legs with a chainsaw. Not that we would do any damage with an axe, right? <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So after two years, uh, they improved the two-way radio system to the to the effect that we could actually uh, be trusted with the, with the chainsaw, which made you know made it a lot easier. <laughs> But
0: they gave you the electric ones, and there was no way yeah. to plug them in. Yeah. And they, got, you know,
2: they were actually gas powered, but they didn't give us any gas, <laughs> <laughs> and they put the chains on backwards.
0: <laughs> well, I would have made it a lot easier, though. I mean, going to the chains and a lot faster.
2: Oh yeah, no, going yeah, through all that. yeah. We got we got down to an art, and it was uh, probably the hardest, some of the hardest uh, days that I've spent in my life. Of course, it's you know it's buggy. Uh, you know, we started in, uh, when the ice was out. We got out there before paddlers that even got out there, right. <clears throat> breaking ice sometimes. And uh, hard work, we'd get up early in the morning, and uh, and, then, and then we'd move. We'd clear a portage, carry our gear across, clean a campsite, build a campsite or or a trail. And by the end of the day, you know, we uh, I don't remember ever drinking any water. Except, you know, oh. at, at a portage, you'd stick your head under where the canoes were beached stick your head down and you'd gulp water whenever you could between between working on the port end of the day we had this huge looked like a like a five gallon pot we'd make this this bitter bitter tea and we'd put lots of sugar and canned milk in it right. and we drink like copious amounts of this this, uh, this strong tea that was uh, <laughs> never drank anything never thought about that our pleasure in the evenings, we'd take a, a Louis L'Amour novel and we'd, oh, we'd read man. Louis L'Amour on yeah. the campfire. My
0: grandfather was a huge fan of those books. Yeah. I was a
1: huge fan of those books. I
0: oh yeah, those books. Oh yeah. I, my brother may still have all my grandfather's. <laughs> if you're looking for, I've still got
1: a few.
2: <laughs> yeah, Nancy Jew didn't. It didn't really uh, cut it. So <laughs> not <laughs> your, not your cup of tea, to so <laughs> speak. Not really. No. So well, that's you know, I did that for uh, almost ten years. So right, um, and then got into the outfitting business. That you know, against all my better judgment <laughs> if, you, if, if you love canoeing don't go into the outfitting business yeah uh, no i shouldn't say that it, it was a great you know um you know what we did and we uh, <clears throat> it's a whole other other dimension t- to my own another chapter in my life right so uh and nice to see getting people out there and properly outfitted and and uh and <clears throat> we started taking guided guided trips out at that time although i was taking junior rangers out when i was a ranger and teaching them how to you know do whitewater. That was back in the 1970s, right? 80s, oh wow. So. And we're still still doing that today. You know, eventually uh, um, bringing it up to date. Uh, you know, my wife and I have have uh, been building on a 1931 uh, private uh, deeded property in uh, Lady Evelyn Smith Wilderness Park.
0: You have the eco lodge there. It's
2: the eco lodge there to paddle in or fly in, and uh, and it's great. It's a teaching learning facility because uh, um, just the indigenous history. And the fact that it's you know one of the last remaining uh, intact stands of uh, old growth red and white pine, right? So it's so still have, old growth there. Oh yeah, it's it's one of the one of the largest in yeah. North America still. And if you know the history, you know I'm an environmentalist. Uh, yeah. um, obviously, I, it's it's been in my blood since early 1970s when the Ontario government uh, um, decided to make a, uh, one of the religious. Uh, Burial sites in Tomogamy, uh ski hill, international ski hill, Maple Mountain. Yeah. To Beijing, uh, place where the soul spirit dwells, without any notice or, uh, or any uh, any uh, talks with the First Nations in Temagami. That's something that huh. they, they threw out there. Politicians grabbed it, you know, and made all these promises for uh, um, jobs into the you know into the the next uh, couple of generations, whatever without thinking that it doesn't make it's not plausible economically um <laughs> and it's a religious you know spiritual religious cycle. yeah, tell yeah. Me, yeah. People. so these are decisions being made back in the day and the environment movement which is neat because a friend of mine he's passed on now uh, Bob Hunter was the co-founder of Greenpeace and I, I spent many many trips across Canada shooting uh, environment videos for the TV station and uh and they kick started Greenpeace on the coast Vancouver, and at the same time we kick started the environment movement in tomogamy in basically central East uh, Canada so a lot of people don 't realize that at the same time they got a lot of the great press obviously and, and you know and through the years protecting old growth not just the whales actually they started you know um, when they were testing uh, atomic atomic bombs in the, yeah. in the Pacific that was their first um, you know, go-to project. Yeah, I
0: think that was my first big uh, thing with Greenpeace. Was yeah. it was all whales and nuclear? Yes. Bomb, yes. And, and then, and power then seals, that, right? Yeah. yeah. And then seals. And then, then the seals. Yeah.
2: And uh, that took me. You know, I was doing this. Uh, I went to on uh, on the sly as a um, undercover agent, so to speak, to the Magellans when they opened up seal hunting. Bob right. Hunter was there. Uh, Paul Watson, uh, yeah. another co-founder yes. with the uh, Sea Shepherd Society, showed up. Um, expecting that the seal hunters, who've been sealing for 150 years, 200 years, would just drop their their clubs and pick up combs to comb seals for the fur. So uh, oh. this didn't go over well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I was supposed to go out on one of the banana boats on it with a crew for and I, you know, I have a registered gun license, and I was going in as a uh, a big game hunter, um, uh, not a, as a hunter, but as a an outfitter. trying to to work out trips. So I I was going to take video of these guys going out on the ice floes. But all hell broke loose. 300 angry sealers descended on the hotel uh, in the Magdalens and uh, forcibly, and Paul Watson's room was right above my head, broke his door down finally and beat him up and then threw him on a plane and they flew him to Nova Scotia somewhere. Oh, wow. And stole, I think, $5,000 cash from him. So, So these guys, you know, they... Uh, they they don't forget things. <laughs> so And it, it was a, a naivety on Paul Watson's, uh, you know, on on his behalf. And when, I mean, when you spend 150, 200 years as part of your culture, whether it's logging, or I'm not, a, I'm not an advocate for seal hunting or clubbing seals, still, it was a naivety on the part of, say, Paul Watson. Uh, he should have known that they weren't going to be very happy because... Previously, when he was there, he had, uh, I think, overturned one of their smaller boats. Um, okay. There was an incident, um, and I think a couple of the, uh, the fishermen almost drowned. Oh, right. right. So, okay. I mean, t- people don't forget these things.
0: No. Yes, when he shows up.
2: Yeah. They anyway, remember that. I had to, I had to leave. I had, I, my, my, uh, my cover was blown. I had to take my in March. It's really severe weather. I had to find a place to hide for. Uh, several days in the interior <laughs> until it until it cooled down and then and then, uh, and then took, a, and took a flight out of there when when uh, yeah and I mean they were they were breaking uh, cameras to, uh, press were jumping out of the second story windows and uh, the place was emptied out within 24 hours Wow. So, except for me with my little tent in the blizzard <laughs> in the middle of the <laughs> island somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another story.
0: <laughs> so then you, you head back for your do more outfitting and guiding and
2: yeah. Uh, well, we have a trail building company too, and it's really taken off. And it's a lot of people have acreage, but they can't they can't use it. Right. So we look at it environmentally, uh, how we're going to build trails uh, sustainably and with low impact. So instead of getting a you know a. a backhoe in there an excavator you know we go in with hand tools with the crew and sculpt trails um, depending on the environment soil right. soil types uh, vegetation sensitive features we'll build structures floating board boardwalks that type of thing we try to uh to cut the footprint down so that's part of what we do And then we open up the lodge for five months off-grid um greatest place on the earth uh you know for for introducing people back to nature because people go up there to reconnect Yeah, uh, we have families photographers who uh, basically lost touch with you know the important things in life what, what really makes them happy right so and we look at ourselves as, as a conduit from you know for indigenous history nature um, and just the pleasure of life you know and, and, and to explore that sense of exploration and all these, all these things that they're missing in their life and we see that in the eyes and the, and the experiences that people have when they go up there. Mm-hmm. It's, it really it, it makes us happy. We don't we, we don't just say, you know, okay, here's your cabin. You're on your own basically. We guide these people. We're there 24 uh, 24 hours a day. back and call, and it's a lot of work, especially getting in and out of there. Yeah. Uh, yes.
1: Yes. It's very remote.
2: But I mean, it, it's you know, it, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't love doing it. But, you know, well, I mean,
0: we've seen that is like got the, the lodge there and there's the waterfall and you get the rapids of up there up the river you had, you had the fishing the relaxing canoeing like when hiking. did you
1: when did you take over that cabin and at the ecolodge
2: like when did you first first start that you have to read the book <laughs> it's, it's the cabin 2699 at uh, halfwilson.com <laughs> <laughs> there's a plug well in a nutshell um i was just in the right place at the right time with uh, the what the third third owner of that cabin, uh, met him. He wanted a, a, a Canadian steward to look after, to look after the place. Um, and there were. This was before the wilderness park, and, and the government wanted to um, expand the park system, and they wanted to expropriate the cabin. Oh, okay. Right. So I managed to. T- I was working with the government at the time. There's always some back scratching going on. So I said, "Look, this is this is an important uh, safe house for people coming in off the high ground." in bad weather we always keep the cabin open it's always a cabin open at our place for, for people in trouble and, uh, and, and it needs maintenance and you know the old timers would just throw their tin cans you know, in, either into the river we're still pulling stuff out of the river and uh, just dumping it in the bush so right. you know, we clean it up fix up the cabin um, <clears throat> so that was back in when I was in my ranger days which was late 70s early 80s and then uh the old fellow died, willed it to two two of his sons, and uh, they eventually said, look, dad would have liked you to have this, because he knows how hard you work to try to protect this area. No money has ever passed hands for that transaction, Um, except from the first owner to the second owner. I think they sold it for $600 US. Right. So, I mean, that was like 1950 or something. Yeah. Wow. so, yeah, like I said, we, don't, we never take it uh, for granted that, that we have this property in the park. It's it, d- My wife, Andrea, does all the designing from paint colors that blend in with nature to the amenities that we have in the cabins there. And that's and sort of a, um, what we call lux, uh, rustic luxury right? or rustic elegance in my, yes. wife's, uh, yeah. in my wife's words. So people are pretty surprised as to, I mean, who else would have Denby... Uh, cookware, you know, in at in a, in a bush camp, you know, that, that far removed, so yeah. people would, would expect Melmac, you know. The, yeah. Here's your paper plate. <laughs> <The> paper plate. <laughs> yeah, hey, we're an environmental group now. We don't use paper plates. We do wash dishes. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, so now, you know, we'll come break up, we'll be in there again. And, um,
0: now, between your sealed club and prevention days and your um, Eco Lodge days. There was some stuff that was happening up that way. What is, the Squirrel Road.
2: <laughs> I can't uh, write about that. Blockade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, some of the stuff I can't talk about.
0: Okay. <laughs> it, it's Well, there, there, it happened. Um, yeah. It's a lot of um,
2: trying to preserve the forests in Tamagami. Yes, yeah, well, having worked with the government gave me a real insight as to. The machinations of a government bureaucracy that was faulty. Right. Um, and also uh, um, disproportionately in favor of industrial expansion, industrial licensing uh, roads. Uh, <clears throat> they had no concept or knowledge or acceptance, really, of anything other than. Uh, um, extractive-based industry. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> when it came to um, trying to plead on an emotional or philosophical basis to protect old-growth forests, well, what's what's it worth to you? What's it worth in the long term? We know what a tree, a big tree, is worth in the mill. So, we've almost had to bastardize our belief systems, our passions, and come up with a strategy. Well, this is worth. Uh, In long-term money, tourism, like in eco or cultural tourism, so many dollars over a long period of time. Right. Not only that, I mean, we don't know enough about old-growth forests. We're still learning about it. We can't replicate these forests. So, you know, give it. we need to really reinvestigate how we are managing or mismanaging our resources. We look at the West and East Coast fisheries. What have we done? I mean, they're in sad shape. Mining. Um, we've allowed mining to take place in, in very sensitive uh, places, like well, like Wolf Lake, a good yeah. example. Um, Timago is no different. Um, you know, they want to open up uh, a lot of new mines with the with the current government. It's uh, uh, you know business as usual. Let's get these guys. Let's open up more mines. Open up more roads. Let's get industrial. Uh, um, uh, Let you know build up the economy of Ontario through the extraction of uh, minerals for us.
0: Yeah, I mean the big one is save solace. Save solace, right? You know, or let's sell out the green
2: belt. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, like
0: yes. It, yeah. I mean, I, it, it's like the politicians see the dollar signs, but yeah. they're not paying attention to what the people that know that area yeah. are saying. And they say, no, there, there's trees. We'll we'll cut it down. We'll make money, and trees will grow back. Not understanding old growth forests and
2: yeah. I mean, whether. I mean, they're replacing uh, ancient forests with monocultures that are quick. Right. Most, most wood products go to uh, the pulp factories. So, I mean, it's just it's a sign of the times. Mm-hmm. Something that grows fast can be harvested quickly and then replanted. So, it, you know, it has a 30-, 40-, 50-year cycle instead of 200 years. You know? Yeah. So, so, I mean, that makes makes sense from that that their perspective. Um, but it's not sustainable. Yeah. We know, we know it's not sustainable climate change has impacted forest growth for example in a big way <clears throat> and uh so all of these things have uh um had a had an effect on on almost everything that we that we do or see or enjoy in the north from, mm-hmm. from canoeing to uh even harvesting um harvesting wood products you know we have to look at things different the way we can't keep doing what we're doing the way we're doing it right but yeah, going back to the Red Squirrel days, I mean, that was, you know, the Premier of Ontario, Bob Ray, the year before he was Premier, got, you know, he got carried off. We all got carried off and processed. Um, it, you know, it, it was, um, it really made an awareness of what was going on yeah. in uh, the West Coast was getting all of the, the fanfare as far as the environmental uh, you know, issues. But, but like I say, you know, things were happening in our neck of the woods. And people took note and said, "You know, uh, tomogamy was put on the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, endangered Spaces list. Oh wow! It may go back on again because uh, uh, of the industri- industrial expansion and just the the landscape of politics in the province here um, has set the environment movement back at least three decades. Right? Yes,
1: yes. I agree. Yeah. So
2: yeah, and now he's shouting. You know." He's shout, you know uh, uh, We've been shackled as far as the conservation and environment groups. We, we have no power. You know, Doug Ford has, uh, rewritten the Endangered Species Act, um, among other things, and, uh, changed the Environmental Assessment Act. All of these things that were, um, critical for sustaining the quality of life in this, in this province. So, Mm -hmm. so we need, we know what we need to do. (laughs) We just need to figure out how to do it right. Yeah. The fact that we can go up and paddle
0: tomography, and enjoy the nature that's there and everything like this. I think there's a lot of people they don't know the history of what happened. No. They've, they, I mean, it's not something you get taught in school or anything like no. that. And I mean, in, unless you're told that it happened, they don't realize that they have people like you to thank for being able to get up there. And you, you know, you're not seeing big tracts of land all all logged and slashed and burned and and all that sort of stuff you can still get up there and not see big areas logging now i mean i for one when i when i'm paddling and see nature and then also come across a logging area you know you're on this high when you're out paddling on a canoe trip and then when you come across something like that it just
1: sinks
2: you right off the bat
1: yeah and just the building of roads is so damaging for for that area well that's
2: Mm -hmm. a that's a huge issue uh you know we we were fighting for roadless wilderness, Yep. and uh, you know, here in the states, you can't go anywhere um, in the mainland of the United States more than I think I think it's like thirty kilometers from a from a road. You know, if you look at and having worked in the government, I know that logging roads, when they're first put in, um, is a real detriment to the local populations of big game, for example. Yeah, fishing uh, small lakes get fished out very quickly. Uh, hunters and anglers always complain about, well, depletion of game is because of the roads. And I looked at, uh, you know, what, the thing with the government, having worked with, they have some great statistics and great studies, but they never use them for, for, you know, for ma- managing. I sat in a couple of government committees and I went straight to the files and I found out, well, this logging road was put in such and such a year. What's, what's the status of the hunting? in the last in the 10 years that that was open the first year that road's open they took out 10 moose 18 bear the second year it was open zero. Third year zero and that's same with any roads that they put in logging roads partly funded by uh, by you and me mm-hmm. um, they're opened up to the general public eventually the lakes get fished out uh, and the big game uh, is depleted in the yeah. Crownland areas. And, uh, and then they, they complain that they don't have a, <laughs> there's no, not, not enough game and fish to catch. So, yes. where because, does it end? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, roadless but, wilderness, yeah. That's you know, I
0: mean, the, the big the big one over the last year has been, well, more than last year, but, is Boundary Waters, the mining, you know, putting the kibosh on that.
1: It's not put a stop to it, but it's stop go, stop and go, stop go, and Finally, they put a stop to it in the Boundary Waters, and they thought, was it a copper mine or something? But it's yeah, just its yeah. just so damaging to the area, and that watershed feeds so many areas with, with fresh water, and you can't afford to have a mine in areas like that.
0: One accident, and it's all gone.
2: Yeah, well, when I was with the government, There was and the, the rise in the environmental movement, the uh, Ministry of Mines and uh, the, the mining fraternity started to get worried. So all of their um, low-potential sites which uh, didn't have a lot of... The, the, there was no reason why we couldn't actually make a conservation reserve within those low-potential sites. They didn't have a lot of, uh, um, I guess, a lot of notice within the mining community, but the, the middle, I guess, the middle-potential sites uh, were always... You know, we can't touch those. They'll never be uh, you know, included within a park system. Right. So what they did, they up all, they uh, increased all of the low-potential sites to middle-potential sites. So, uh, in order to protect more land or protect more uh, the licenses uh, that were out there, so um, and it's been a it's been a very difficult industry to pitch rocks at, so to speak. Um, and I mean, you're getting into a, a you know a really uh, a really touchy political. You know how much money goes into political coffers, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. there's a deeper issue there that. Uh, um, is far beyond uh, you know the power of any environmental group. Well, and then you know what? Like just to sort of before we move
0: on to other things, is as long as those environmental groups are still there pushing and pushing and pushing to help preserve these areas. And like I say, especially Tamagui, where we all love to go paddling. Yeah. You know, and help protect it. Maybe one day somebody sees a light and goes, "Yeah, you know what?
2: Maybe these environmentalists are, are right." But I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, even the town of Tamagami. I mean, we, you know, we had um, we had uh, done studies, economic studies, to show the sustainable sustainability of preserving the land, increasing the park size. I worked on the initial park boundaries, and there were, it was four times the size of what what we ended up with. Oh, yeah! Wow! Because they removed because oh no, your your park boundary takes too much away from the logging companies. We can't have that, so we ended up with the park that we got. So in the end, they started adding on conservation reserves and waterway parks, which really have no, no protection status. Right. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, that's it's it's hard to say where you know what direction we're going to go in now because we're spinning our wheels. Yeah. From an environmental conservation, uh, we we just need to change the political landscape. That's you know. And we also need more park systems because we have more and more people. Population grows. More yep. people want to get outside. The pandemic hasn't you know has increased that traffic flow, and a lot of people. Uh, we have a lot of um, from the GTA coming up. Who really don't have the background or the, the ethical considerations? Not that I'm, you know, I'm against new campers. I think it's great that they're getting out, but they, you know, a lot of them are untrained. We they a, need the education. We, they need the education. They need to be educated. Maybe a, per, a permit system that, that requires a test or yes, some kind of educational process to make sure that these people know about, you know, proper camping etiquette. Um, and it goes, you know, a lot of that has to do with mindfulness. You mm-hmm. know, um, it goes beyond just keeping a clean campsite. It's like how you travel, where you where you pitch a camp, how you portage, you know, um, and be mindful of other people, not just who you meet out there, but other people who come afterwards. Yeah. Need new more park systems. We have we're so far behind. We're more than decades behind other countries as far as protecting the amount of land that should be protected. Yeah. And uh, and the park. Well, I mean, we get into a long discussion about park permit fees. Which oh, is, don't is. even get me started <laughs> on <laughs> that hat. You know, I'll let Kevin Callen—he can do that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
0: well, <coughs> you know, he, Kevin's even a big one about we need more parks. Well, that's because
2: that's I, I told him to say that. <laughs> well,
0: I, I know. I'm just trying to make Kevin feel good. <laughs> I
2: <don't> know. <laughs> no, we've been. Uh, well, I can tell you that. You no, know, I worked on the park boundary for for Tomogamy. It was it was a much larger park. It was almost the size of Al- Algonquin Park. Yeah. And it protected. We used. Uh, a basis of uh, all the ANSI sites and all the ar- archaeological sites were kept in three big binders, which magically disappeared when they ch- when they re- when they shut the office down in Tomogamy and moved it to, to North Bay. Oh, well, we can't find the sensitive features report anymore. But we used that as a basis to, to create that park system, and it protected ninety three percent of all of the sensitive features within that district. Right. And then it reduced it down to about one third or one quarter the size it was supposed to. Oh. Hmm. And only, t- and they shut down services, like the archaeological services. Uh, they shut down Thor Conway, who is the regional archaeologist. he was finding too many good things from, uh, you know, from a prehistoric uh, right. value. Um, all these cultural assets, and, and he said, "Look, we only know about ten percent. We've only covered ten percent of the Tamagami District. Ninety percent, we don't know what's out there." But they're logging and mining in these areas. So.
0: yeah, yeah. You know like, that, that's, it's cool to be on a canoe trip. And then you come across a cliff and some rocks and, and you see all the old um, pictographs and, and stuff. like. Yeah. Like, I don't care who you are. If you're on a canoe trip and you know they're there, you're beating it over there and you're checking them out. Yeah. And it's really awesome to see that sort of thing. And Tomogamy filled with them. Yeah. And I mean, the, there's, you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. He's up at Alex Matthias' place every year for the to of the Seasons. But,
2: oh, Mr. The, the flagging tape guy yeah yeah uh, and he knows he
0: knows where so many of these things are and like he'll talk your ear off for oh, yeah. like all weekend <laughs> if you let him yeah. uh but yeah he's so knowledgeable about all these spots and you're just like it's so cool to see that that's up there but how much is that? Has he not found and how so much like, is that threat right? and how much is that threat
2: yeah he and i um we're, we're always sparring he's he's Way more competitive than I am. He he always got He descends on my booth every year in Toronto. <laughs> and says "Well, I found this site here. I don't know if you know about this site here, and, and it's, you know that's great. I think that's that's wonderful. That you finding these sites. Um, I've been working with uh, with the Dene in northern Manitoba, and, and we do a lot. Of, we find a lot of archaeology. But it's we almost got sued by the uh, Manitoba Archaeological Society for not turning over our information to them. I said, "Well, this is not your this is not your property. Mm-hmm. This belongs to the First Nations." So we'll only turn it over to the First Nations, not you. And uh, but they were, they didn't like that because here I'm a I'm an amateur archaeologist, but, but I'm you know we're out there. We find a yeah. lot of stuff. We don't just paddle. We we, we trek across our long eskers and across you know we're up in the Arctic walking through, walking overland for miles and miles and miles. And so and we find stuff. So we're passing this uh, information over to the Dene of Northern Manitoba, which they you know for their. Um, their initiative now, which is the tribal—it's the first in Canada, tribal park okay which covers the whole uh, Seal River watershed. And I, my wife and I have done all—I think we've paddled 2,000 miles, all across, back and forth from Saskatchewan to Hudson Bay, all those river systems within that watershed. So we're happy to hand over their their prop—you know, their that information that they've lost track of. Right. I don't want to get—I want to give it to another bureaucracy because oh, yeah, yeah. Hey might <laughs> go missing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so
1: what's the current threat up north? The the current one that we're facing that we need to protect.
2: Are you talking about climate change? No, no, no. Uh, well, well, to the sure. rivers, to the river systems. I'm just thinking about
1: mining and forestry and stuff like that. But is there is there a climate change issue? Because I know that the northern reach of, of certain migratory animals are moving north, and and that tree cover is also moving north.
2: Yeah, I, get, I think the biggest ind- indicator of climate changes is in the Arctic. Not just Canada. I'm talking yeah. about about all of that, that whole circle. Is yeah, is the melting of, of the permafrost. You can see that. Yes. You know, on the trips that I've been up on in the Arctic, you can see that all the ground oozing. Mm-hmm. You know, during that that short period in the summertime. Yeah. And uh, and the and the housing collapsing on on these yeah. these villages on the, the melting, coast. Yeah, the so, permafrost
1: going away and houses. N- yeah, they that that just can't.
2: Another indicator too is that uh, traveling the Arctic, we used to not have to worry about. Polar bears until we got really close to the coastal area. Right. Yeah. They're coming in two, three, four hundred kilometers inland because of the poor ice. Ice. Uh, they can't hunt normally. Yeah. yeah. And and food, you know, uh, lack of food. Yep. So they have no choice. Yeah, moose are moving further north. Beavers are moving further. Bird species that clear up in the tuck they say, "Wow, we've never seen a cardinal here before." That kind of thing. So you know, things are are uh, are happening. Uh, you know, very quickly and dramatically. Yes. Yeah. In the far north. So, and I did, you know, I did my talk in Toronto, and I mentioned every season, even in the lower Canadian Shield, climate change has made uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of impact on how we plan trips. From microburst yeah. to storms, and you know, that that we're getting storms that we've never seen before. Flash Catch. flooding. Oh, yeah. We got forest fires in the boreal um, more than we've ever seen before. Look at California's on fire for. Yeah. Always, it seems. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, or, you know, landslides and, and forest fires. Well, the boreal is the same uh, in, in the mid-north. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of changes. Um, and mining, yeah, they're, they're now wanting to open up for, uh, for some, a lot of these materials, these minerals used in high technology. So. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah.
1: the new thing, because all these rare minerals... They're looking for sources of this, these new minerals around the world, and just technology is demanding all these finer and more expensive minerals.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at um, prospecting, uh, if you look at even the even the coast of Labrador, for example, there are hundreds and hundreds of drop sites and and and, uh, and garbage left from uh, uh, mining and prospecting and test drilling and that. Okay. Yes. They just leave everything behind. So and it's if you think if you look across Canada, how many of these garbage sites have been left behind and not cleaned up? You look at Wolf Lake, trying to get them yeah. to clean up the site there. I mean, that's no different. I've been to places where, wow, there's a there's a prospecting camp and they just leave everything there. Uh, on a beautiful campsite. It's right. all shredded plastics and, and this makeshift sort of cabin that they built, tin cans, all their garbage is just left behind. Wow. Um all across Canada, so I'm you say it it's going to move further and further yeah. north. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. we, like we've seen that with the old Pine Tree Line, the dew Line, and so on. But they've made an effort to clean up with some a lot of those areas. It cost millions of dollars for the military to do so. Yeah. But yeah, now it's the it's the mineral rights and the, yeah. the the prospecting for you know these fine minerals and diamonds and so on. It's leaving a mess.
2: Yeah, I, I mean. Granted, they can't do anything now without some kind of accountability. I mean, things have changed somewhat. Right. Um, not, as far as from a, from an environmental um, perspective, they're not doing enough yet. Yeah. They, they can always improve more. Um, and they'll try to get away with as much as... as yeah. As well, we ho- hopefully,
0: eventually, somebody's going to step up and say, no, you need to bang, 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 bang. Yeah. Listen, so... Uh, You spend, like you say, five months at the Eco Lodge in Tamagami. So I I know you love that area. If you had to suggest paddling areas for other people new to Tamagami, but not that area, (laughs) what areas are your
2: favorites to paddle? Uh, You know, I... I really enjoy doing that work with the, with the path to the paddle. Right. In those areas. oh, um, well, there's so much out there. I, uh, I mean, Quetico, is parts of Quetico which uh, resemble tomogamy in, in a lot of ways. The Falls Chain, for example. Um, Man I love Manitoba. I just, I mean, most people's perspective of Manitoba is they drive through Winnipeg and Brandon. They, yep. see, they see wheat fields, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, flat, uh, flat landscape. And it's fairly nondescript. So you go a little bit further north. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, you get prickly pear cactus on the Manicotagan River. You know, which is one of the lower rivers in the White Shell area. And, uh, just beautiful pool and drop rivers. And you can do loop systems up through the, the Gammon and Bloodbane River. Uh, all these river systems. We get a, one of the greatest historic river systems, the Hayes River. Yep. I have found trade knives pipes human bones cannonballs wow um, <laughs> on this on this river that had more traffic on it in the 1800s than, would, than we would ever see in modern day yeah um, and further north you get Manitoba has this transitional uh, landscape from from prairie to boreal to tundra and yeah. no other province has that and, and an ocean coastline yes so and all you know all of these things and you can see all of these things in one country like the Seal River for example yeah those transitions trans- you don't see prairie but you see that boreal to that, um, Hudson Bay lowlands to uh, the Arctic tundra so uh, I think Manitoba it ranks really high Real in high. my book
0: I used to live in Yorkton Saskatchewan which is like right on the border of Manitoba and Saskatchewan mm-hmm. sort of thing and yeah when, when you're driving through there, it's nice and flat. Yeah. But when you start heading
2: north from there,
0: it, it totally changes.
2: Yeah, and I mean that's most of the river systems on the east side of Lake Winnipeg start in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I look at when I map out uh, areas, I don't even look at provincial or territorial or municipal boundaries because. I mean, our indigenous populations never, never had fences. They never had yeah. boundaries like Correct. this. And yes. when you're looking at 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 these traditional or these prehistoric waterways, our first trails. I mean, when I map out things, I can't. I know the politics are different from Ontario to Manitoba. Right. Like we have woodland caribou. It's managed differently than Atikikie, which it which it borders. Um. So I mean, I when I mapped out my uh, Manitoba book I included Woodland Caribou because all the lake systems that end up in Lake Winnipeg
0: start there start there so
2: yeah yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of Doctors Without Borders kind of thing I'm I'm a paddler without borders
0: (laughs) and you know what there's absolutely nothing wrong with that you know when when we did Woodland Caribou that was one of the things was okay are we going to pass into Manitoba I mean you use the borders as a reference just so you know where you are yeah, but realistically, it's if you're doing a trip and you pass into a different province or something, it, it really means nothing.
2: No, absolutely. I right? mean, it's like the like the like the route I talked about today, the Boundary Waters route. You know, you're going down through the Gunflint area, yeah. International boundary. When I first went down there, I didn't know what to expect. I expected, you know, uh, you know, with uh, guys with guards with uh, automatic rifles, you know, and check stations at each portage, <laughs> and I thought it's undeveloped. Yeah. Um, one, you know, you're portaging on the Canadian side one hour, the next hour you're on the American side, you're going back and forth, um, and uh didn't see anybody. Right. No, there was only a few, there was some rock cairns and a monument that to told you that you're on an international boundary. Uh, and pristine. Well, pristine on the American side. Canadian side, nothing had been done with campsites, portages hadn't been cleared for decades. Uh, and what's strange because here's the difference in the politics behind behind like the maintenance aspect of public areas like this Um, it's a it's a heritage river right on the and it's a waterway provincial park but um, there's been no duty of care ever on that system and we saw that you know firsthand when we came down I mean that's it was just night and day on, a, on a, the Superior National Forest, campsites are pristine, well maintained, clean. Portages are all cleaned out. Um, you know probably on Canadian side, you know, every twenty feet, you're, you're stepping over a, a, a deadfall. Right. Oh, okay. Campsites yeah. have never really been developed or maintained. Yeah. So it's a the difference there, it's, and it's kind of sad to see. Right. Uh, especially for an international boundary and an international trail which is the path of the paddle now which is okay. uh, part of the Trans Canada Trail. That's the lackluster uh, way the not just Ontario Park, the Ontario government looks at if they can't make money on it, they don't really care. They don't really and they're not really trained, I think, to understand the importance of the various types of new tourism, uh, new right. tourism interests. I mean there's so many different types of tourism, now there's you know, ecotourism. Nobody can define that properly. Uh, adventure tourism, which most of us are here, it, it could include hunting, uh, you know, and it could include jet skiing on a river, <laughs> you know, paddling, sports, bicycling, that kind of thing. Cultural tourism, visiting a, an indigenous community, for example. Um, you know, all types of other uh, urban exploration is another form of. Uh, uh, even disaster tourism. <laughs> Which is you know people will go to bombed out cities and, and right. take pictures this thing. well Chern-
0: Chernobyl is a big one for that right Chernobyl, yeah yeah, yeah.
2: Vis- visit all the dogs there yeah have survived um, yeah uh, so uh, yeah the government is faulty in that respect they don't know the value of maintaining that duty of care and it's like the I mean, it goes right back to when I did the Nisinaabe book and all those deaths there. I said, well, something's going, something's happening here. People are using topographic maps and they're not, you know, they were not designed for recreational use. That was right. for military and political reasons. But we have, if there's no guidebooks and no information, we got Europeans, Americans coming over using topo maps and thinking that, well, we, we've got our shit together, which we don't. And the same year that I did the study, I went down... Ended up at the at the uh, coroner's office in Toronto, going through all the files there. The Ontario government tourism spent I think over on, on a hundred thousand dollars on on ads for the Missanabe River. That same year, that two Americans went over Thunderhouse Falls because because the map was incorrect and it showed the portage on a place on the other side of the river where you can't get to. Right. Especially if you're if if you're not a good paddler, it's impossible to get to that site. So, five deaths right up front Thunderhouse. Wow. Attributed to one port There were like, I think, 24 mistakes on, on those maps for that river. So wow, the, and that's that, huge. But that was a bit of a wake-up call for the, for the government, especially for the Natural Resources Government, because they could have been sued by... Uh, all levels of government could have been sued from from the, uh, uh, the federal government down to the provincial government for not... They're selling a product, obviously through magazine articles. Yeah, yep. it's a waterway park, and it's not safe. Right, P- and people are dying on that on that river. They could have been sued uh, many times. Or and it's interesting. I asked a lot of these projects. I fund we fund ourselves, and we were having trouble getting funding for um, the Missinabi, for example. So we we spent a lot of our our money <laughs> doing all of this work. Right, government turned us down. When that story came out on the front page of the Toronto Star, I had a, I had a... a uh, when I was writing the book up in... I spent the winter in Mitch McContin on the beach. Uh, they flew up and spent two days with me going over this story. This is a great story. You know, all these people dying on this river because of the mistakes on the topographic maps. It came out in the, tr- the cover of the Toronto Star. I got a call from Peterborough, the head office of the Ministry of Natural Resources. He said, you got to come here. So... I went, sat across a big old desk from the Minister of Natural Resources, and he pointed that at me and he said, Hap Wilson, you're a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> he pushed an envelope across the table to me, a $10,000 check, for finishing the book, finishing the Musa Nisnabi book. Oh, wow. Awesome. It was awesome, because we need to pay our bills yeah. for, yeah. You, know, you know, we have to buy our time when we do these projects. But it took that, it took the deaths on the Nisanaabi, to make it clear that you know um, we need to change how we do things. And look at things. right. So, and plus we need to educate paddlers, for example, to to you know, do the research. Don't trust the topographical maps if you're going to a new area, um, and you don't have those map reading skills. So,
0: yeah. So you you have the guidebooks out. You've been you've been doing those. Um, yeah. I think I got one, well, I, I know I've got one for tomogamy and stuff like that. And in it, there's 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 diagrams of, you know, rapids and stuff and where, what to watch out for. And it changes over time, of course. But there's there's listings and, and descriptions and stuff, which which are really handy.
2: Well, yeah, that's the thing about, a lot of people love maps. I mean, I love maps. I love yeah. maps all the time. And there's a lot of new maps coming out. But they've got either too much stuff on them. Right. It <clears throat> doesn't explain anything. And people are getting people getting into trouble because it doesn't give enough information as to what to expect. And we have a lot of neophytes out there who they don't have a lot of time to get out there. They get out they get out of their 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 safety zone maybe one two weeks of the year, and and they get they have a bad trip because because they got this map. um, They don't really tell you a lot. Right. That's, That's where the guidebooks come in, and we we match up with wherever maps people need. Uh, we always suggest you need maps and the guidebook. So the guidebook—you um, don't need to take the guidebook, but you can transfer information onto your maps. So and that's going to help you. get you'll understand more about, and it'll, it'll raise that that level of enjoyment because you know now you know the indigenous history, the history, and any of any of the other special features of these routes. Rather than looking at a map that's hard to read, right, with the with the scale of a one to two hundred fifty thousand or whatever it is,
0: yeah. Well, you, you you know when you're when you're paddling, and yeah, you look at that map and go, okay, well, that's what's coming up. These are these rapids, and then you look at the guidebook and there's a picture, and oh yeah, we got to keep to the left or, <laughs> or the right or something like that, or
2: expect there's a, a shelf there. Well, that's you a funny story in itself too, because I had a I had a guy come up to me, and he, and he had a trip down the Des Moines River, and uh, it was a young guide, uh, I won't tell you what what you know what group it was that he had joined, and the uh, young guide. And he didn't, he didn't, apparently he didn't have my guidebook. A lot lot of the guys say, well, I don't really have Bill's guidebook. Yeah, we don't need that. Right. So uh, this guy was saying, well, I was on this group, and the guide would stop at the top of every rapid and go into the bush. After two or three rapids, I asked him, you know, why are you going into the bush? I have a bladder infection. I have to relieve myself. So he ended up, after the fourth rapid, he followed the guide back into the bush and he's sitting behind a tree reading my book, look, <laughs> looking, looking at how to read the next rapid. See? Comes in handy. Yeah, it comes in handy. You know, it's not, you know, it's in, the books are not, I didn't write these books per se for paddlers. Well, right. That was part of it. Part of it was to improve people's knowledge if they wanted to use it. Right. Um, every book that I put out had an environmental purpose everybody every river in manitoba was chosen because they were threatened in one way or another either right they were going to either build roads forestry power line damming project hayes river beautiful uh you know historic river they wanted to divert the flow of the hayes river into the nelson to the north because that's a dam controlled river oh um so yeah. we got to actively involved i mentioned bob hunter earlier Uh, We did a video on the haze and got the word out. We actually formed like an ad hoc committee with members, and and we we registered it. And just that, just that, those motions put the fear into the government. And that part of the bureaucracy, we're not Bob Hunter. We're not going to touch the Greenpeace. You know, he's got lots of connections in in that. We don't want to make a make a big wave about. So so they dropped that that notion of. of, uh, uh, this is the kind of tactics that we used. in right. they did the same with they wanted to divert the flow of the Des Moines, a very popular river in Quebec. The they wanted to dam up Lac Des and and push the flow towards the Kippewa which which is a power uh, which is a small power system. Yeah. So we did a video, we got that word out and that that hit the hit the airways and uh, you know, it makes it and those kind of things made a difference. Right. And that's, uh, like I said, going back to the books, and that's, that was the emphasis behind all the books that, that, uh, that I put out. It had to be not just where to go, how to do it. It's like, why are these rivers and places in this book? So, right. it helps canoes. It's great, you know. It does. I, yeah. When the Misnavi book came out, came out in 94. There has not been one death on the Misnavi. When it, previous, previous to that, over a 12-year period, there was an average of two deaths a year on the Misnavi River. Oh, wow. So we look at that. Say, oh, the guidebooks are doing something. It's a win. It gives people a bit of a head-up on what to expect. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So
0: even if it's not, okay, do not follow this picture exactly, at least you've got a heads-up on, you know what's okay, coming here's, up. here's yeah. what's coming up. Right? Yeah, so yeah. now you do do other books. Um, I read... Uh, uh, Dance of the Dead Men, um, John Hornby, like that failed expedition. <laughs> that, I, I enjoyed that book. I really, I really enjoyed that. But you've got a whole slew of other books. Uh, if
2: people wanted to check out all your books, yeah, hapwilson.com, hapwilson.com. Yeah, we have an online store. Uh, nice thing about the interaction with with people people who order from my store. Uh, because it's a personalized service. I know right. the postal rates have gone up, and uh, which is uh, something beyond our control. But yeah. We'll put a, you know we have people saying, well, can you write this? Can you dedicate this to my to my uncle who's uh, you know he's suffering from so and so dementia or whatever, or or going through some kind of. And he took he introduced me to the Missoni back, in the so we'll, we'll put these little notations in the books that we send out to people. Right. We'll do a little sketch on the envelope so when it comes in, they see this little sketch on the outside. Or, you know, the half Wilson book has come in. So we to spend a little time with each book that goes out. Right. It's not like, you know, you go to Amazon and, you know, you're you're increasing Jeff Bezos' uh, <laughs> profit line. Yeah. You know, right. And, and not getting assigned to half Wilson book. So this is nice. And my art print, all my art's on, uh, online as well. So that's, I mean, that's another part of what I do is, is that's uh, one of my passions and in, in my my time my meditative time in the winter when i'm not doing the other stuff is when i do my art and writing so right you know, in the winter
0: so if you had to pick a couple books right now that paddlers should read
2: um, i like my last book is out of abaddon right which is and it fits every category it's uh <laughs> there's <laughs> There's no zombies in it. It's a, oh. it's, it's, I know. <laughs> all uh, right, this and, is interview's <laughs> over. Sorry. Yeah. It's an, It's a. It's. It's not one of these. It's. It's a. Uh, it's a dystopian novel. It's a dystopian love story. It's an adventure novel, and it's a survival guide all wrapped up in one. With a lot of indigenous uh, worked into it um, from my associations with, uh, with with various indigenous peoples and their customs and culture. And work that into a lot of my own experiences, you know, as a wilderness guide and uh, and teacher. So I really enjoyed that writing that book. Um, And uh, I didn't have to adhere to any kind of um, like guidebooks have. There's a criteria to the guidebook, and I have there's a fairly rigid uh, rigidness to guidebooks and uh, short stories. I've done, I've done several short story books but in novels I've, it's a, like an open door um, and all that creativity that I could draw on over the, from over the years from my own travels and experiences um, I can write into the characters of this book right and bring in, I studied, that book took me over 20, 20 years. I had to keep updating the science, updating the politics. I had to wait till the next American election to see who came. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've got, you know, I've got all these modern, modern day characters in there. Um, and, uh, so, and, and things change over the years, but I had to make it current. Right. And I think I did not a bad job. Cause I'm seeing a lot of things that I knew about 10 years ago coming up on news items, like fusion, like fusion. Uh, the study of, of fusion generation, yeah. generating um, uh, electromagnetic weaponry, for um, example. I had that in my book almost 15 years ago. I started looking at, at that uh, things that we don't know that Russia has or China has. That <laughs> you know, we we don't know everything that's going on militarily with weaponry. Right. I started studying the background for that when uh, it was a a story in the Utney Reader. I love that magazine. Uh, It was an expose of of, uh, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars project. Oh yeah, yeah. right. And uh, if you look at what was going on up in Alaska, they were shooting up, uh, trying to, uh, they were practicing or developing a strategy uh, and a way to control weather patterns. Right. So I built I built that in that reality um, into believable science that's still going on. Right to disrupt anyway I'm not going to go into any detail because you have to buy the book that sounds like <laughs> a, a book that's
0: right up Derek's alley
2: <laughs> maybe yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of this I'm thinking of this yeah I, I like every book because I, I, I put a lot of myself into each of those right. books so each one River Fire has been a, one of my best selling books that in The Cabin yeah um Trails and Tribulations, that's a great read for anybody coming out of the, uh, outdoor ed programs wanting to be a guide and knowing, hey, it's, it's not, you know, if you're a guide, hey, what a romantic, you know, carefree lifestyle. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, yeah. it's not
0: as, uh, it's not a made for TV movie. So, yeah, <laughs> that
2: and Grail and Me, it's my wife's favorite, favorite book because, uh, she's secretly hidden in there because she left me for 18 years, then came back. We've been together for 12 years now and it's been bliss. So, uh, and it's, there's a little bit of, you know, my sentimentality in there, but I've right. got, uh, I've got Gray Owl kind of as the spook in the background looking over my shoulder because, uh, um, we, we kind of had sort of similarities in, in our, in our, you know, adult lives. Right, right. Not that I, you know, dressed up like, like a native person. No, but, or you I, I wasn't you a womanizer. The and <laughs> you know, Yeah, well. I, I didn't have several <laughs> wives. Um, yeah, but I mean, he was a ranger. You know, he he got his skills in tomogamy as yeah. I did, and uh, so yeah, that's another book that I, 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 you know, I it's really hard to pinpoint. Every, you know, one and dance of dead men. A lot of research went into that period, yeah. 1920s. Uh, the Battle squad in World War One, right down to the suitcases. Actually, they traveled with suitcases up on, into the Arctic. That's how they, they carried their stuff. Yeah. Right down to the the wood burning stove he had, type of gun, um, all of these, uh, the clothing that they wore, and the language. Because so I had I had dialogue put in based on the diary that was found. Yeah. So uh, you
0: know it it shows that, that that there was some a lot of research in there. And really enjoyable books. I mean, people are reading them, so you must be doing some, right?
2: <laughs> you know.
0: Uh, we'll, we'll we'll sort of put an end here. Um, you know what like tomogamy you talk, to, you talk about Hap Wilson and it's tomogamy people are going up there people are coming to see you I mean these shows you're, you're always hammered with fans and, and people wanted to talk to you about paddling and stuff like that so whatever you're doing Hap well, keep doing it
2: well my wife says well <clears throat> when the time comes she's going to get a taxidermy and I'm going to be mounted on the dining <laughs> hall wall
1: <laughs>
2: you know and I'll be I'll be, I'll be there as a Take me to the river. <laughs> My head will be bobbing back and forth. Yeah, so, yeah, put a big old bobblehead yeah, on. Huh? still alive. Yeah, you can talk to him. He's on the wall of the dining right? hall. So, anyway, she. Uh, and she trends, uh, uh, if I if I don't keep you know if I don't keep myself in shape, she's gonna trade me into two thirty year olds. So you never know. Could happen. Yeah. So anyway, thanks guys. Appreciate. Yes, uh, thank you for having really awesome. Thank you
0: for uh, coming here and speaking with us today. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll speak again. Yes, we'll speak again. My pleasure, guys. Take it easy.
1: So that was Hap Wilson. Yes. It was nice to be able to sit down with him and get him to tell his story and hear about his life. And and I, I just here, there, and everywhere, like I've chatted with him in the past, there's so much more than what's not in this interview. So he's right. a he's a fascinating individual. Uh, but there human. are still
0: things in there that I didn't know, like all this stuff out in the Magnum Islands and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I know. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize he was, a, he was that into... Yeah. There's a,
1: he's done a lot of stuff. He's done. He's been involved in a lot.
0: Yeah. You know, and like I say, with his books, he's got a ton of books out and stuff. A lot of them, you know, well, some of them are, are fiction. A lot of them are nonfiction yep. guidebooks and stuff about Grey Owl. Like, he taught Piers Brosnan how to pal- paddle and yep. throw axes so that he could yep. play Grey Owl in the exactly. movie. Exactly.
1: So, uh, for Pierce to accurately depict Grey Owley like mm-hmm. showed him proper paddle strokes and, and how to throw an axe and how to look the Yeah, part.
0: I'm pretty sure I've seen that movie.
1: I've never seen it. I've yeah. never seen it.
0: Uh, but, you know, I mean, we know him, we know Hap from the canoeing and the yeah. eco-lodge and stuff like that and and some of the tomogamy stuff that he's done, uh, the environmental stuff and, and whatnot, which, as he said, he really... Couldn't get into yeah. uh, things that were happening, but I mean, it's all public record if you look up like the tomogamy protests on yes, exactly. squirrel yeah. Lake. Is it red, Squ- red squirrel road? Red squirrel road, yeah. 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 So
1: and now it's the saltlands that that are, that are threatened in, and, and they're threatened. Yeah. yeah. So
0: yeah, I was like I say, there there was stuff about half I never knew, and uh, a lot of it I, I've I've heard before, but it's nice to get it out there. So.
1: Uh-huh.
0: People know who this fella is and uh yeah. you know he's uh more than just a guy that walks around in a with a bandana on his head and whatnot paddling and building yes. building uh, boardwalks and sitting in a in eco lodge there's yeah. a whole lot more to him than So it was nice to actually that.
1: sit down and finally interview him like he was one of our white whales that we've been trying to trying to arrange to interview we've been you know, to trying to make it happen over the last few years, last couple of years, and uh, and so finally we uh, made it work out. Dun,
0: dun, dun. Yeah. yeah, awesome! Uh, thanks, Hat, for joining us. Yes, awesome. That's great. Uh, you got anything else this week?
1: Nada. That's it. I never have anything. Stop asking that question. <laughs> All
0: right, because the one time I don't ask. I know. Wait, I, wait, I got wait. something to add <laughs> before we go. But wait, before we go, now how much would you pay? Still nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> All righty. if you want to find out more about us, you can find us at PaddlingAdventuresRadio.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter You can download or stream our episodes at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Player FM and all your favorite podcast downloading sites. You Google (laughs) Paddling Adventures Radio and you'll find us everywhere. Or you can go to the episode page at PaddlingAdventuresRadio.com and you can stream or download all our episodes there. Again, a big thank you to uh, Hap for joining us on our show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your friends and family and fellow paddlers. I want to thank everybody for listening
1: this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Spest. We'll see you next time.